This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. On the show today, we had Sally White from Crikey talk about federal politics, Tim Wright, Asia-Pacific Director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, joined me on the phone from New York to talk about their Nobel Peace Prize win, then author George Megalogenis joined me in the studio to talk about the history and current state of play of Australian politics, as well as the ideological spectrum and whether it's shifted. We also talked about his participation in the Festival of Questions at the Wheeler Centre. I then finally had Naomi Cass, director of CCP, and Pippa Milne, curator of CCP, join me to talk about their exhibition, An Orthodox Flow of Images, which is at the Centre for Contemporary Photography and is part of the Melbourne Festival. Yes, you are listening to 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. This is a show, Uncommon Sense. And I have with me uh, the wonderful Sally White, who's Deputy ed- deputy Editor of Crikey and uh, political expert. Uh, and she's here to talk federal politics. Hi, Sally. Hi, thanks for having me, Amy. That's like we're really excited to have you. I am particularly. <laughs> so uh, well, there's so much to talk about at the moment. Um, and one of the things that's just developed um, overnight and yesterday is, well, the lack of an energy policy uh, from the Turnbull government. Now, that may not be news uh in itself, but there's been a development or a backward slide as to the existence of any kind of policy. Could you share with us what exactly happened? Yeah, so I think it's fair to say that uh, debate around uh, energy policy at the moment is a bit of a dumpster fire, but basically what's happened is that overnight um, Tony Abbott, former Prime Minister, gave a speech to a London-based group called the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which are a climax climate sceptic think tank, um, to which he um, he suggested that climate change is probably doing good um, and that he compared policies um, to combat climate change to primitive people once killing goats to appease the volcano gods. So he has gone like 100% in the direction of... Um, Either climate change, uh, he called he used the term the so-called settled science of climate change. He mm-hmm. called it absolute crap. Uh, he um, so basically, yeah, when a hundred percent in the climate change isn't real, and if it is, it's probably not a bad thing. So why should we do anything about it? Um, which comes at a time when the uh, the government back home is that. They're trying to actually, you know, have a bit of a debate around what we do about energy policy. Uh, And this has thrown a bit of a spanner in the works. Well, it sure has. I mean, Tony Abbott tends to pop his head up very regularly to give um, expert advice to our other politicians and his colleagues about many areas of policy, including same-sex marriage. But with this one in particular, yesterday um, there was a summit, I think it's even on today, an energy summit, and Josh Frydenberg, the Federal Energy Minister, suggested that uh, the coalition government may backtrack and not even implement a clean energy target, which was the chief scientist recommendation. Um, Now, the report that Alan Finkel um, brought down did have flaws and the modelling was a bit questionable, but uh, this is a bit of a backward step, isn't it, to even not consider implementing or creating a new clean energy target to replace the renewable energy target when it uh, runs out? 
Yeah, it is It is a backward step. And basically what we had with the um, Thinkor report is there was a number of recommendations. The government accepted every single one of them except for the idea of a clean energy target and has been sort of... Uh, debating this internally for a long time and then we've had this speech from Josh Frydenberg yesterday where he basically made it sound like um, renewables are doing really well, um, they're getting um, they're becoming cheaper and cheaper so we don't need to subsidise them which is basically the way that a clean energy target would work was um, it, so they're, they're trying to sort of send these signals that um, they're backing away from a clean energy target not because of sort of ideological reasons but because they say oh it's not even needed um you know renewables are doing just fine without us uh which uh alan finkel um who also spoke at the energy summit um which is um as much as some of these things you know this energy summit is run by the australian financial review so it's um sort of set up by media and create stories and run yes. a nice little cycle there. Um, but it's nice to have them all in one place and so that um, then when um, they make all of these comments in um, you can sort of get them all <laughs> get them all there for the reaction straight away. So um, Alan Finkel um, said in a speech that he um, really strongly recommends that the um, government still go ahead with a clean energy target. But I think what what is in, what is important here is that we've ended up with a situation where the government still is in a position where it can't actually uh, come to a policy position within its within itself, let alone then take it to the parliament and try and get it through. Mm. Um, they can't come to an effective policy position where they will be able to, uh, you know, do anything at all um, effectively to. Um, deal both with how we as a country are emitting um, emitting carbon dioxide and our emissions and secondly to create stability for the power grid which is um, what the what consumers are asking for and also what the big energy companies are asking for. Indeed but one of the things uh, we've seen more recently in the last week or so or probably even two weeks has been uh, this discussion ongoing discussion probably a distraction uh, about a gas crisis. Apparently we have a shortage of gas which uh, really is not true. We have plenty of gas but we're exporting it overseas and uh, therefore locally gas prices are going up and uh, crikey did publish a piece recently uh, about this it's called we have enough cheap easy to extract gas to last 100 years there's just one problem and that's by the australia institute's mark og and uh, i thought that was it's particularly revealing i think of the desperation from this government of needing to fill the air with something and of, of course electricity and gas prices are something that uh, most people are concerned about because it, it is high and it is expensive, uh, but it really is just one way to distract us from a policy vacuum, isn't it? To get all of these CEOs together and ask them to reduce their prices and, and also put pressure on the states to suggest that they need to uh, back down from, uh, for example, Victoria's ban on fracking. Yeah, it's, it is one of many, um, and, and I think this can be said about many uh, parts of Australian politics, it's sort of one of those confected debates and, and also uh, throwing, pr and yeah, throwing pressure on, say, the, the Victorian government um, or the New South Wales government on their fracking policies to distract from what the issue is. So what we had, we do have a, a lot of gas. The issue is, is that um, the prices are going up because so much of our gas is being uh, is being sent overseas, and so this uh, 
there are um, there are options available to to the government. Uh, we do have um, um, a a mechanism. And, and sometimes this is why we hear things about pulling the trigger. Um, there's, there's a point where the government could actually um, say to gas companies, you actually can't um, export um, any more gas because you need to make sure that we've got enough gas here. Um, what uh, Malcolm Turnbull did instead was he had another meeting with the gas companies. I think that this has like, been a really co- common theme from the Prime Minister this year. He loves having meetings with big bosses um, and saying, oh, look, we had a meeting. I asked them nicely. They said they would um, you know, make sure that um, prices for things wouldn't um, go too high. And so he got, a, he got a commitment from them that there would be enough gas for the Australian market, but that hasn't... Um, that hasn't done any. It's not a structural um, change to the way that the gas market works. So it means that this debate isn't going to end anytime soon, and we'll be talking about it um, for quite a while until we do. Yes, we will. And it also underlines um, a huge lack of now confidence in uh, the energy sector around being able to make decisions, particularly in the renewable energy around investment, because uh, this clean energy target is under a lot of uncertainty. Um, Now, let's bypass energy for a moment now and move to uh, the COAG meeting that occurred recently because the federal government has been pushing for changes to our anti-terrorism laws. And a lot of people have suggested that uh, the outcome of this is very counterproductive in terms of our privacy and liberties, civil liberties. And uh, particularly, there's something about driver's licences and uh, facial recognition and that the federal government basically wants to work with the states so that they have everyone's uh, driver's licence photos so that they can identify people through CCTV footage. That's just one of the examples of the reforms. What are the key concerns about this and is... It was quite surprising, was it not, that everyone uh, from the States was on board with this? It was surprising. It was... So, the, there's a couple of different um, different sort of elements to what they've, um, what they've tried to put in place, which is, yeah, that... So, these, um, these databases already exist. They already do keep all of our driver's licences. Um, but generally, if a um, law enforcement um, agency wants to uh, request one of those photos, they have to go through a process, and so it takes a bit of time. And so, what the government is saying is that if we have them on a database and you can just, say, put in Sally White... Here comes a licence photo. Okay, we can see that she's the person on our CCTV. Um, and there's a few other things, which is um, the uh, a plan to extend the amount of time they can hold someone um, on suspicion of terrorism issues without um, actually laying charges. And so um, I know for quite a few people, and, and me included, that things like this, um, like the first thing you think of is, what is the what is the cost here to to us as a society? Um, and the thing is is that we is that we have had absolutely no um, proper um, opposition for this. Um, the The Labor Party federally um, hasn't um, hasn't said anything, and, and the Victorian Premier um, Daniel Andrews even said that you know being able to debate civil liberties is a he used the word luxury, um, which I think didn't um, didn't go down well in in some areas but basically because we um, as in some areas of, of debate in in this country one area where um, 
when when governments just feel like they can't afford to ever be seen as soft or have any form of compromise is when it comes to terrorism. And so we end up with this situation where um, this... Um, these things were agreed to by the federal government and all the um, state and territory governments at COAG. There was a little bit of, um, I guess, maybe I think dissent might be too much of a, a harsh word, but um, a little bit of, uh, I guess, caution from the uh, ACT chief minister. Um, but apart from that, this is uh, sailing through because uh, there's just not enough, um, I guess, big name opposition uh, from from the actual opposition in Parliament. Mm, exactly. And I mean, historically, Labor have been pretty bipartisan on changes like this, and it's pretty unpopular to do so to, to potentially dissent, because uh, obviously you can be wedged into a position where um, the coalition, for example, would say that Labor is soft on crime and they're soft on terrorism. So um, it's a bit tragic, really, that uh, we're playing politics with something like our civil liberties, and you obviously need to strike a balance. And But, you know, clearly having a debate would be pretty healthy, at least, before just waving through any reform. Yeah, a debate would be healthy, and as well, because this is not the first type of this reform. This is We've had a number of, of steps um, along the way that we've... Um, that the government has has taken, where we've moved a little bit, and it's been it's been sort of an inch at a time. It's not been um, the government hasn't come out and said, "All right, we'd like a surveillance state. We think this is the way to go." But it means that um, every small announcement doesn't get a um, enough scrutiny, and then we end up with quite large changes happening. Mm. And it, we found this with the debate around um, storing metadata that at at the last minute um, the media managed to sort of, um, I guess, raise enough concerns, but it's still um, it's still not a huge um, a huge thing, and it doesn't grab the attention of everyone. I think a lot of people don't necessarily realise that when you put together all of the different things that um, the government may know about you, that they can that it can create quite a um, quite a detailed picture about your life that you may not want them to know mm. um not because you're doing anything wrong just because it's none of their business yes um, and if anyone has a political memory that goes back further than three months they might remember that uh, george brandis really struggled with what metadata even is um so yeah. even our politicians aren't quite sure exactly what uh reforms they're putting forward some of the time which is a little bit disturbing um, but let's move to uh, the, the other and final major development uh, that we've seen in politics. And I did uh, let out a very surprised and slight expletive when I saw this on Twitter. Um, I think it was last week uh, was when I saw that Nick Xenophon is leaving the Senate uh, next year to run uh, for the state, stout, sorry, state South Australian Parliament. And he's also running uh, other candidates there to hopefully take the balance of power. Some have even suggested he could become Premier, which I mean it's pretty small prospect, but uh, it's pretty amazing really to think that such a stalwart of the Senate who has been um, really a leader of the crossbenchers um, informally uh, behind the scenes is, is going to leave. Um, obviously someone will replace him from the Nick Xenophon team, uh, but yeah, what do you think of that move? It is a pretty savvy move, isn't it? 
It's it's a really interesting move, and I think I had a very similar reaction to you on Friday when I saw it, um, yeah. <laughs> and sort of was like, "Oh no, we need to change everything we're writing about for the moment." Yeah. Uh, but it's it's it has implications both for South Australian state politics and for federal politics. It will be really interesting to see what happens. So there will still be three Nick Xenophon senators in the federal Senate and one. Um, member in the House of Reps for, for now, but it will be very interesting to see what kind of, who becomes, I guess, the leader of that party and, and what kind of influence, if any, Nick Xenophon continues to have on federal um, negotiations. I think it will be very interesting. As you said, he has been a leader of um, the crossbench in a way. He's, been, he's very... Um, He's very on top of policy. He's um, he's probably, I guess, I think maybe the government might find him one of the more easy ones to negotiate with. And I know that some other crossbenchers have also, I guess, leaned on him for his knowledge and sort of, um, uh, you know, for direction on, on which way to vote and that kind of thing. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how the government goes with negotiating with a quite disparate crossbench, which... Um, you know, we might be looking at um, Malcolm Roberts might be getting replaced, so it might be getting even uh, more bizarre. But we, it will be very interesting to see what happens there, and it will, then will also be very interesting to see what happens in South Australia because he is going to run in that seat. He's very popular, and will be running quite a few candidates for lower house seats. Whether or not he, he says he's aiming for. Um, the balance of power, uh, which in in South Australia they've had a Labor government for many, many years. They held on just at the last state election. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see um, what he does with the balance of power situation and if he looks at forming some kind of coalition with a um, with either side, which would be more likely to be Labor because Liberal, the Liberal Party has ruled out um, dealing with him in that way. If that was to happen... I guess, would he retain the same, I guess, appeal for people? Because often, um, I think you could talk about it with Malcolm Turnbull, people liked the idea of him before he became Prime Minister and then once he actually got the job and had to start doing it, I think a lot of people um, haven't liked what they've seen. Um, so um, would the idea of a Nick Xenophon actually in a more um, a more like a official role of sort of governing and not being on a crossbench and not negotiating, like what would that mean for South Australian policies and what would that mean for him as him as a politician? It's hard to know which way he would go depending on how many seats he manages to score in that situation. He did recently say uh, that if he um, was offered a position in cabinet um, or as a ministerial role in some form of minority government that he wouldn't take it because he wanted to keep um, some outsider distance and uh, and some way to hold people to account but as as we know um, Nick Xenophon is a very clever politician and um, you know who knows what his uh, strategy will be but it is interesting to see that uh, that he might be a real alternative uh, instead of being a protest vote uh, he may become or that party may become in future a real alternative for South Australia so uh, it's uh, one of those interesting ones to watch for isn't it? 
Yeah, it really is. And we had a piece by uh, William Bow, um, who's a sophologist. In um, he's our poll bludger in in Crikey yesterday, and he took, he looked at both Nick Xenophon and and One Nation in Queensland and what they're trying to do. And he said, you know, we might be looking at a situation in Australia where we are, um, I guess, getting towards a quite a big change. We've had a two party system and and we don't have the sort of very broad coalitions of parties like many European parliaments have but perhaps things will be changing uh, and that these coalitions might become more common or um, the people people are I guess being drawn towards these parties yeah not just as a uh, I guess a, a protest vote but that um, but that they're looking actually at the policies and also that they're looking at their policies, but then these parties like Nick Xenophon's party and One Nation's party, if you look at a lot of their policies, they don't fit into really, um, I guess, traditional ideas of, of conservative or progressive. So it's people are, are thinking about the parties that they're voting for in different ways. Mm. Thank you so much, Sally, for joining me. Um, There's just been so much to discuss this week and I'm sure there will be uh, every other week until we have a nice break over the summer (laughs) period. Yes, I think that a lot of people in politics are looking forward to the quiet over Christmas. Uh Um, And I know it's only October. Yeah, that is it's telling, isn't it? But it has been a pleasure to discuss it all with you. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Sally. Thanks, Amy. That was Sally White, Deputy Editor of Crikey, and she joined me to talk about federal politics. And what do you know? Landlines are a fantastic form of communication, and we now have Tim Wright uh, joining us live from the UN in New York on a landline. Hi, Tim. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me on the show again. (laughs) Thank you. It's great to have you back. Uh, It was wonderful to have you in the studio when you were um, in the thick of all of those negotiations to get this uh, UN treaty up. So just to jog people's memory a bit um, from when we last spoke in April, uh, what happened to that uh, UN treaty and the negotiations in the end? Yeah, so we were, to, we were between the two negotiating sessions then. Um, we went back to the UN for another four weeks of negotiations and uh, finally adopted the treaty uh, on the 7th of July. This is the, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Uh, and it then opened for signature on the 20th of September. Yes, and so at the moment, how many countries have signed up to this treaty and who are the peop- uh, the countries that are notably absent? Because I recall that uh, certainly Australia and America were not party to the, those negotiations and very deliberately so. That's right. So we've got 53 uh, countries that have signed so far. Um, many of them had their presidents and prime ministers and foreign ministers here uh, a couple of weeks ago and they lined up and were among the first uh, to add their names. Um, Australia has refused to sign the treaty because of its belief that US nuclear weapons are essential for our security. Um, We've heard that line repeated just in the past uh, few days by the Prime Minister. Um, This is a really dangerous message um, to be promoting. Uh, It's very hypocritical for us to, for the Australian government to say that North Korea shouldn't have nuclear weapons when um, the Australian government itself is saying that uh, nuclear weapons are, are necessary for security. 
Yes, because, I mean, this argument uh, is really, the, their view is it's deterrence, it's a deterrence mechanism and it's also, um, you know, if others have nuclear weapons, well, then we should too. Um, you know, there is this agreement that Iran will, um, you know, remove or stop their nuclear weapons program. But obviously North Korea uh, has been developing nuclear weapons and they've also been testing missiles very recently. I mean, Malcolm Turnbull has used quite... Um, inflammatory language around this and has really stuck very closely to Donald Trump uh, on, on their position. I mean, just how novel is that in terms of how far Australia has gone recently in terms of our backing of um, of Donald Trump's approach to North Korea? It's pretty extraordinary. Um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago here, Donald Trump was more or less threatening to use nuclear weapons against North Korea and the Foreign Minister, Julie Bishop, um, basically endorsed those comments and said that that helped to uh, make China more assertive in uh, putting pressure on North Korea to end its nuclear weapon program. So you know, for the Australian government to be praising what you know, could amount to a you know, violation of international law that is you know, threatening another country, you know, threatening the use of force against another country. Um, yeah, it just shows how uh, far this government has um, slipped towards um, the very dangerous policies of the Trump administration. Indeed, and it's uh, a bit disturbing, really, to think that our ANZUS Treaty is one of the reasons why we tend to just go into autopilot whenever the New York, the uh, sorry, American government um, makes some proclamation on uh, military policy or foreign policy. Uh, it would be nice for us to think a bit more independently, and I know that uh, Malcolm Fraser was a big proponent of that in the past. So is currently Paul Keating, um, but in terms of now. Looking at this treaty, um, it did have the backing of 122 nations when it was adopted. Um, as you say, 53 people have uh, signed it. How do? What is the process for a country um, once they've adopted the treaty? Do they need to ratify it or put it into legislation? Yeah, so this is um, the work that we're doing now at the UN. Uh, we're meeting with countries that haven't yet signed and uh, talking through that process and also uh, the secondary process of ratification, which usually involves um, some kind of legislative process. Um, it might not actually involve the adoption of a new law domestically, but um, there's um, typically parliamentary uh, involvement. So it's not... Uh, quick to get all of these countries to do that um, but we expect that by the end of next year we'll have enough countries that are formally ratified um, so that the treaty can enter into legal force. Well, it's very exciting to hear that um, and that we've got a lot more progress since we last spoke. Now, uh, what will assist in that process and hopefully speed it up is uh, that you won the Nobel Peace Prize. The International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons uh, won that very, very recently. Um, and you are part of the team uh, who's won this award. And I found it really interesting that it, that particular uh, group or organisation was founded here in Australia. So could you share with us a bit about um, how we've had such a pivotal role um, in this uh, movement and campaign? 
Yeah, it was a great uh, honour to uh, receive the Nobel Peace Prize and uh, to think that this is just a... Uh, it was just a kind of a small group of Australians uh, who met uh, about 10 years ago and decided that we needed um, this global campaign, I guess, shows that, um, you know, if you've got a bold vision, then you can achieve uh, big results. And it's been remarkable just how many organisations around the world have embraced the campaign and how much traction it's uh, obtained over the last um a few years in particular um, and this year of course is you know, was our big year that when we got the treaty finally adopted um, but it took a it took a lot of um, work to get to this point and uh, the Australian campaign team has been you know, pretty instrumental in in achieving the treaty and how long has it taken what has been the full journey um, to get to this point so 10 years ago, we you know, put forward this proposal for a nuclear weapon ban treaty um, based on the fact that there were prohibition treaties on um, other types of weapons, so chemical weapons, biological weapons, landmines and cluster munitions. Uh, there was no support uh, from the nuclear armed nations uh, and so... Uh, you know, the idea didn't really take flight, but we then worked on persuading countries that they could go ahead and negotiate the treaty even without the support of the nuclear-armed nations and that by doing so they'd put great pressure on them to disarm. And so this treaty we see as a kind of stigmatising tool uh, for nuclear weapons that will create new norms and really... Um, isolate the nuclear-armed nations and allies like Australia that still cling to this misguided belief that nuclear weapons bring security. Um, and a big part of our campaign has been to change the whole debate about nuclear weapons, uh, particularly uh, in diplomatic forums where previously it was dominated by quite abstract ideas of security and, um, and geopolitics and... Um, the kind of you know treating these weapons in very uh, in a very abstract way, whereas we wanted to put the focus on what the weapons actually do to people and the environment when they're used. And part of the um, the I guess moment of of countries I guess coming on board or being convinced that this is a really meaningful important thing to do is that change in debate because I know that uh, you were really key in facilitating survivor testimony and making sure that people heard the stories uh, from people who've been impacted by nuclear weapons testing and the dropping of nuclear weapons. Can you share um, you know any of those particular stories that you thought um, made made an impact on people? Yeah, every point along the way we've had um, the survivors of the bombings uh, speak and you know, to, to governments as well as to the public and it has really kind of made it irrefutable um, that you know, these weapons are horrific and need to be prohibited. Um, you know, I'm thinking of people like Setsuko Serlo who was 13 years old when the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima um, she's been really pivotal in our campaign and um, almost all of her fellow classmates were killed and she, when she speaks she often kind of shows a list of the names of all of the students at her school who were killed and describes how she kind of miraculously um, managed to survive it. Um, whenever she 
um, speaks, she really, you know, captures the attention of the diplomats and um, makes it difficult for them then to oppose what we're trying to do. Mm. And, I mean, nuclear weapons, when they're dropped, obviously they have an immediate impact, but they are almost a death sentence for a lot of the people who suffer from the after effects of, of nuclear weapons and radiation exposure, aren't they? That's right, and we've seen that um, all around the world where nuclear tests uh, have occurred. Uh, of course, nuclear tests uh, took place in Australia in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, many also took place uh, in the Pacific, Marshall Islands, French Polynesia and Kiribati. Uh, and they've had a devastating um, long-term impact, particularly uh, because of the um, radiological effects. And a lot of uh, the kind of scientific data uh, in relation to those impacts has been presented at various conferences um, in recent years in, all, in order to kind of make the case um, for a prohibition treaty. Uh, so that kind of scientific contribution was also essential. Indeed. And we have seen more and more attention drawn to that issue of nuclear testing recently. And, and certainly we focused on it on the show, chatting with John Pilger and David Vine about uh, their contributions to that debate. Um, but I want to focus on one of your colleagues as well, Associate Professor Tillman Ruff, who was the founding chair of ICANN. And uh, he recently said in an interview post this Nobel um, Peace Prize win that uh, when the treaty to ban landmines um, was developed and came into effect, although a, a lot of key nations there weren't involved in it and didn't get on board, and I'm sure um, America possibly was one of those, that uh, that certainly it created, as you say, more pressure um, to get on board. And even if they didn't formally sign up or formally ratify anything, they've informally started to change their behaviour and, um, and the norms have shifted. Is that something that you hope uh, will be achieved with this treaty as well? Yeah, there are all sorts of ways that you can influence the behaviour of the government, even if it's unwilling to sign a treaty. And one of the ways is to get its allies to sign um, uh, or to kind of exert civil society pressure um, and you know, pressure from financial institutions, for example. Um, one of the aspects of our campaign is to get countries to stop, um, in, sorry, um, financial institutions to stop investing in companies that manufacture nuclear weapons. Uh, and we think that that will um, be helped along by the adoption of this uh, treaty. Um, so this is a, this is kind of a long-term project and you know, it's not about kind of immediately resolving the uh, situation on the Korean peninsula um, but rather about kind of changing the norms and um, as, as, as you say um, kind of emulating uh, the success of the landmine campaign and other campaigns that have prohibited inhumane and indiscriminate weapons. Mm. And this really is the last frontier in terms of a weapon of mass destruction that is uh, really at the moment or hadn't been previously condemned um, or at least uh, it hadn't been stipulated that it was something we shouldn't be using in any official way, had it? 
That's that's right, and I think that has much to do with the uh, dominance here at the UN of the permanent five members of the Security Council, all of which are nuclear armed. Um, so the US, Russia, France, China, and the UK, um, and they also. Um, uh, members of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is a treaty negotiated about 50 years ago. And although that treaty requires that they pursue negotiations for disarmament, they've interpreted it as a licence to retain uh, nuclear weapons indefinitely. Um, and I think to some extent this new treaty, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, uh, will help to uh, change that perception and it really fills a significant gap that previously existed in international law. Mm, a huge gap. And uh, Tim, I know that you are a bit of a local in the Ballerine Peninsula region, uh, which is where I come from too, and that you, there was a particularly large photo of you on the front of the Geelong Addy, <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty much you've made it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but um, how how I excited? That, yeah. yeah, I was going to say how excited are your friends and family and, and the whole area about that too? Well, it was my my dad who contacted the the Geelong Addy, and <laughs> um, he was very proud, and he was quoted in there saying something like it, it's the equivalent of winning the Brownlow Medal, but on the world stage. <laughs> Um, that is that one way for us to truly the, the relate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, brilliant. Yeah, it was a uh, yeah, it's funny to see some of the um the coverage and I think people are really um happy that um an Australian founded organization has received this recognition. Mm. Well, I've only seen anything but pride in terms of um, the media releases and the international and local organisations who have got behind it, including um, the University of Melbourne, of which you're an alumni, and uh, a lot of the other founders are too. So I'm, I know that we're all really excited about this win and the implications that it'll have um, to really continue this campaign and make sure that these uh, countries formally sign up and ratify the treaty, which is just as important as um, agreeing to it in the first place. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for taking the time out uh, whilst you're there in New York to talk to us and hopefully we can check in with you again to see how this is all going and um, keep an eye on that North Korean situation. Thanks very much, Amy. A pleasure. Thank you. That was Tim Wright, who's the Asia-Pacific Director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and uh, they're also known as ICANN. That's the, the shortened version, uh, and they won the Nobel Peace Prize, and uh, apparently you don't even know before it gets announced. So it was as much a surprise to us as it was to them, uh, and congratulations to them for what an amazing win, and, and it is really exciting that at least uh, the citizens of Australia have have really taken a lead, even if our government won't on that issue. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. As mentioned, uh, I have a very special guest here with me in the studio. He is George Megalogenis and he joins me now. Hi, George. Hiya, Amy. Good, how are you? Good, good. It's That's a slow good. crawl getting into town, isn't it? It is. Or getting to this side of town. It is very because you just mentioned you are from across the other side of the river, controversially. Yeah, controversially, but yes. basically every every second um, street I turn into has got a big truck sitting across it with a uh, with a, 
apartment development going up or something else happening. Yeah. There used to be a time when politicians would say, look at all those cranes in the sky, isn't it a great thing? But <laughs> I think now people are annoyed with the uh, sort of tedium of getting from A to B. It is a tedious prospect, isn't it? And that's one of the... Uh, the areas that you mention um, in your recent works is around transport and infrastructure and the great lack of investment that we have over the long term, a, a vision, at, as you will, uh, for infrastructure and also bipartisanship. It, it seems to be a bit of a political football. It's a strange one. So we've, um, I like to take these things back a couple of decades because there was a consensus that sort of developed through the 80s, informed by a lot of things that went wrong in the 70s, that the government was in had its fingers in too many pies, in, in not just in terms of, you know, interventions, but they basically ran too many businesses and they ran them badly. So through the 80s, you know, you sort of take the shackles off the dollar floats, financial systems deregulated, tariff war comes down. Mm. And then Privatisation? Well, that's the, that's, the, that's the big question mark because I think that's the one even all the economic rationalists now look back and say, well, that was, that was sort of the ideology too far. Mm. So the four big prices that were taken off the cabinet table, the dollar, interest rates, uh, tariffs, you know, basically price of imports and um, wages, mm. all came off the cabinet table. But then the privatisation story, and it's been interesting to watch, uh, we talk about Turnbull in a sec with energy policy, but if you think about what went wrong beginning with the sale of Telstra, the thing they should have done at the start, which they are now trying to reverse engineer by the sort of creation of the NBN, they had to separate the wholesale from the retail. So, you know, the business that sold you a telephone plan or, you know, basically conducted the transaction with a household had to be separated from the business that ran the network because if you wanted competition yeah but one company owned the network so it's the equivalent mm. of Qantas owning all the uh, all the terminals at an airport and it never made sense but it was done that way they the uh, coalition government wanted a lot of money they wanted to get their biggest bang for their buck so they basically handed over a monopoly a public monopoly into private hands and a pro, uh, uh, monopolies behave badly whether in public or private hands, but over the long haul, they actually behave worse in, public, in private hands. Mm. And the one-off sugar hit you get to the budget, you never get it back because that money gets spent when you yeah, get it. very quickly. And you lose your dividends, you lose all sorts of things, you actually lose control. And I think, that, you know, we sort of began with a little whinge about how long it took to get here. <laughs> <laughs> Governments have spent a lot of time convincing themselves that staying out of the way was the best thing to do. Now, the public doesn't think that, and the public haven't thought that at all. I mean, they sort of bought the um, deregulation bargain up to a point in the 80s and 90s, but they want governments to solve problems for Mm. them. And they don't think in the sort of, uh, you know, that sort of very tribal, almost university politics ideologies now you get on both sides. People don't think that way. I don't mean, you know, people aren't thinking. The things that concern, you know, your regular voter, uh, basically getting from A to B. I mean, if they're a family, they're worried about their kids' education, they're worried about health. If they're a student, they're actually worried about home ownership at some point because mm. they figure coming up, coming out of com- coming out of high school and then uni with a, with a debt and in, in possibly unaffordable property options and, and, you know, quite nasty little rental options at the moment. Uh, those things people think governments can do something about. Governments say, oh, the market can do these things for you. The market keeps sending a signal back to the household that we would like to rip you off. So mm. that's... 
I didn't uh, – that last essay, it's an interesting one because I get a lot of polys and a lot of public servants have, have sort of been talking about it to me since the thing ran and I've been getting a lot of invites to address public servants behind closed doors and a couple of other organisations. I won't go into too much detail. And it's weird to hear them say, it seems so obvious but we can't get our heads around it and it's very <laughs> difficult to convince ministers yeah. to get back in the game. To get back in the game of, well, infrastructure, to get back in the game of trying to figure out what your education system should look like. So the public system has to, has to, be, has to be raised, has to be raised to a better level. Uh, think about not letting costs get out of control in health. Those things seem obvious, but I, I guess the problem has been for this generation of politicians, their only reference point, apart from maybe a documentary on Gough Whitlam, their only reference mm. point is really Hawking Howard. And that's a deregulation reference point. So that generation that's followed them keep thinking that I've got to stay out. I've got to stay out. Yes. Yes. And we, we spoke with Laura Tingle actually about her quarterly essay, which is quite complementary to yours, Great Expectations. Yes. And yours, the one we're referring to, is called Balancing Act. Yep. You obviously did another one before that. I think it was Trivial Pursuit. Trivial Pursuit. Yeah. That was a long time ago and it was uh, sadly still current. <laughs> yes, it was one it of those ones you wanted, to, you wanted to be right at the time but wrong ultimately. Like yeah. you wanted people to say, well, yeah, 2010 was a We've rotten election on. campaign but we'll move on. Yeah. No, in fact, two, I thought, I mean, 2010 was a bit of a tipping point for me in terms of my journalism. I couldn't mm. imagine continuing daily media if that was the quality of the, if that was the subject matter. Yes. And it's one of the reasons why I sort of, I wouldn't say drifted out, I, you know, going long form of books and the odd documentary is, you know, sort of keeps me doing the thing that I used to do before mm. the media sped up. Yeah. But I would have thought both sides looking at that particular election campaign, the Gillard versus uh, Abbott mm. election campaign, plus, you know, the subplot of Gillard versus Rudd, you would have thought both sides would go, never again. Mm-hmm. But what was the Abbott Prime Ministership about and what was that 2016 election campaign about? In fact, it was more trivial in the 2016 campaign, I think, than there was even in the 2010 campaign. In the 2010 campaign, there was still an understanding that you had to address things like climate change. By the time you get to 2016, uh, the most complex issues, and you've got a brainiac like Malcolm Turnbull who should be able to uh, walk and chew gum on some of these topics, uh, it's now too difficult to even discuss a problem yeah because positions are now so entrenched that it's almost like a really really bad marriage where you're better off not opening your mouth because you know what's coming next indeed well one of the hot topics at the moment which highlights this is energy policy Uh, and it's very disturbing to see that there really is a huge vacuum here from the government itself it obviously has the Finkel report which came out which it's now somewhat distancing itself from and they have left this vacuum whereby they're saying they will respond to it and make a decision by the end of the year meanwhile we're having discussions about oh well electricity prices are high so we're going to have a chat with the CEOs to see if they can do something for you. I mean, this has become a very superficial discussion, hasn't it? Yeah, and, and, and it's not too hard to deconstruct what Malcolm is trying, what Malcolm Turnbull's trying to do. Malcolm Turnbull's instinct is, I have to intervene. I have to tell companies to keep coal-fired power stations running. I have to tell CEOs to to quarantine some of the gas supply for domestic use. All that is interventionist, right? Mm. But you would think it would run counter to anything that the Liberal Party has stood for in the last 30 or so years. Now, the reason, the reason it, and it's funny, he, he gets it intellectually, 
he needs to do something, but he doesn't have any lever to pull. And this is the point that Laura was making in Great Expectations. We've yes. almost forgotten how to govern because we spent so long getting out of the way that the generation that we're dealing with now are confronted with problems that you just can't regulate your way out of, mm. confronted with problems that demand the government make a choice on behalf of the national interest. And it is funny watching him. In fact, he's more, he's more interventionist in terms of his rhetoric than any politician on either side of politics since Whitlam. Yes. Well, particularly interventionist, and I was very shocked when this happened, was when he did uh, have an emergency meeting with Andy Vesey from uh, AGL to say, we really demand that you go back to your board and put forward the suggestion that we need to keep open Liddell. I mean, to me, that's shocking to have a Liberal government tell business what to do. It's not even... I mean, the other thing is <clears throat> his urge is to get, get involved, but he uh, not only does he not have levers to pull, it's not his jurisdiction. Mm. So the Federation doesn't say the Prime Minister... It's, it, Prime Minister, the Constitution's silent on the title. Prime Minister isn't mentioned in the Constitution, but the Federation was never framed uh, along the lines of the most important politician in Australia intervening in what is essentially a state and a, and a market issue. So he's, um, he's he now, I think he's, I mean, give him credit, he knows that there's a problem and he's trying to fix mm. it. The difficulty he's got is he's got a party room that half of them literally don't believe that there's a longer game to play here and that is to, uh, to move to uh, renewables. They don't believe climate change is a thing. And in fact, they think climate change is some nutty conspiracy. And it's really diff- it'd be very difficult to govern in that circumstance. I got, I got, I got a lot of sympathy for him on that score. But again, uh, take it back a step. The tricky thing he's trying to do is to become, in a sense, a command, control, socialist style, interventionist style, but liberal prime minister. It's not a good fit. No. And you have mentioned uh, in that quarterly essay that uh, in terms of the economically reformist governments, it was really the Labor governments that went in and did big, big things. They'd gone into opposition, re, like modelled themselves for the circumstances yep. and the times and then came in to make big changes. Liberal governments uh, get in trouble when they make huge changes generally <laughs> and they're obviously their uh, key constituents like the status quo in general. Um, but what is the Australian history around liberalism and conservatism with the Liberal Party? Because I'd like to understand a bit more about, um, you know, the ideology and the foundations, yeah. how that's evolving, or uh, or how much the Liberal Party is moving away from its legacy. I'm still trying to I'm still trying to get my head around how it became, and it obviously started with John Howard. How it became that the Liberal Party was, became the more ideological party, because traditionally, and you go back to the first decade and a half of Federation, the Labor Party wanted to be a standalone party, wasn't going to enter into any coalition. And they only had to wait 10 years before they got government in their own right. They were the first Labor government to win a majority on the low, in the lower house and in the Senate. First mm. Labor government anywhere of its type in the world. And so to the left, to the centre-left, there, there is an idea of a working-class-based governing party. So up until Hawke-Keating, your history tells you that Australians elect these Labor governments to change things. And after a couple of terms, maybe in the Whitlam case, a bit longer in the Hawke-Keating case and certainly in the Curtin-Chifley case, um, that we switched to Conservatives to settle things down. And so, you know, all the action is on the centre-left and the centre-right is 
basically basically managing. Mm. It is reversed. And we know it's reversed because we know it's reversed because of the way the Liberal Party talk about what their mission is. Their mission is to tell people how to live their lives. Their mission is to punish industry that doesn't sign up to their political agenda. Their mission is to basically pick fights. Their mission is to intervene in the press, uh, to basically use the press, to hound people out of um, out of uh, positions and sort of whether it's government or quasi-government uh, positions. They, uh, they've become quite – I don't want to overdo this because it's not a partisan observation, but they've become quite ideological but in a vicious way, if I can say that, without, yeah. without it being taken the wrong way. I'm not – normally Labor was like this. And Labor was like this a lot in opposition in the 50s and 60s. And, of course, Australians didn't want them in that, in that manifestation. So until Labor sort of found, because it was a little too, not even too far to the left, Labor, remember, in the 50s and 60s, a split along sectarian lines. And a lot of their policies literally had no resonance in middle Australia, but they clung to them because they would rather be, um, you know, uh, morally pure in opposition than be compromised by power. The Liberal Party are behaving with power like the Labor Party in the 50s and 60s. And it's even trickier for them because the public expectation of them is that they will manage and manage modestly. So I think uh, until, until the system sort of whatever the new normal is and we're clearly not in what is a settled period in public life at the moment. Until this thing settles down, you, you, you are in, in, you're running the risk of having a lot of one- and two-term governments and flipping back and forward. The revolving door of the Prime Ministership keeps spinning and the next one is less qualified than the last one who's less qualified mm-hmm. than the one before. So it's... Uh, I could be pessimistic about it. I'm, I, I tell people I'm short-term pessimist, long-term <laughs> optimist. I remain optimistic about this country but I think at the moment you'd have to say that they're struggling they're struggling not just with the with who they are and what they stand for I think they think they know who they are and what they stand for but it doesn't resonate mm. the other thing is and we think about the ideologies and we think about the question of left and right in the past we did have an agreed set of problems to solve and then an argument about the means so identify a problem. The ends might have even been different, but the argument was about means. That was what the politics was about. At the moment, if somebody says X is a problem, the other side will say, no, it isn't. Mm. Not only is it not a problem, but we are 100% right sticking to the path we're on. And it is a very, very difficult, difficult place to conduct your democracy around where both sides are so uh, unwilling to even allow, you know, their opponent airtime, even a second of airtime to acknowledge that they both agree that there is a problem to solve. So we, I mean, we began by talking about public transport. One of the reasons I mentioned public transport in the essay is it's almost brain snap material that a Labor government is devoted to rail and a Liberal mm-hmm. government is devoted to roads. You change government in 2010 and then again in uh, 2013, whenever it was, 2014. Yeah. The incoming Labor government, having watched the previous Bailu Naphthine government uh, tread water on rail, uh, on the expansion of the rail network, inherits uh, uh, the East West Link, which is a road project. Not only do they not want that, they are willing to pay the contractor close to a billion dollars not to do any work. (laughs) (laughs) This stuff is nuts, right? It is nuts, right? Imagine, imagine 
and this is the thing that usually makes the jaw drops when you when you ask politicians to imagine this. Imagine Menzies. Winston, 49 election, and he's inherited the Snowy Mountain scheme from um, Ben Chifley. And he said, Menzies and Chifley were friends, right? But imagine Menzies says, no, I'll, uh, I'll deliver it, but won't take a drop of water out of it. Sorry, I'll com- complete the project, honour the contract, but I won't take a drop of water out of it because it's your dumb idea. Mm. And in fact, I'm going to leave that thing as a white elephant and I'm going to go do something completely different, almost counter to the thing that you're doing. Now, I guess I certainly anticipate a question, but how the hell did they get into that mindset? Yes. That that's how you conduct, that that's how you conduct public affairs. Mm. How do they get into that mindset? And I think both parties will tell you, and they acknowledge this, that a lot of their, a lot of their um, machinery, their advisor class, their caucuses, their party rooms, uh, have only done the one thing, which is politics. Mm. And that doesn't mean they don't have real-life experience. You know, they operate in the real world. They've got friends and family connections in the real world. It is That's the only thing they've ever done. And they were raised to, especially in student politics, raised in that sort of, you know, total combat. Yes. <laughs> Almost violent. Yes. Yes. Um, and you have mentioned in the past this idea that and you've spoken to a few politicians about it, that their idea is, well, I've been doing politics, but I'm not doing government. Yes. I'm not governing. And that is quite a significant, well, disturbing situation because isn't that their job to, when they're in government, govern and uh, and have some level of continuity? Yeah, it's funny. And you think about this, we can take this conversation beyond Australia, and this is, a, this is obviously an observation you can make globally. It is kind of too easy to campaign and kind of too easy to be the opponent. It's kind of too easy at the moment because we're in an anti-establishment cycle to run against the incumbent. And in fact, all the things you say to knock off the incumbent usually involve promising the world to voters and you hope that that person, whoever it is, whether it was Tony Abbott or whether it was Kevin Rudd in 2007 or whether it's Malcolm Turnbull now, you hope that that person knows that, okay, when I... I'm sitting in the desk and I have to start making decisions and I'm in my cabinet room and we're, and we're thrashing out an issue and trying to hear as many... Um, trying to see this issue from as many angles as possible, contest the advice. You hope that they remember, you know, we promised the world but now we have to explain to people why we can't do it this way but have to do it that way. That's not the way they govern. The way they govern is to continue to pretend that the things they said in opposition are not only you know, iron laws, um, they get themselves tied up in extraordinary knots trying to deliver things that they knew they should have known if they were competent. They should never have promised in the first place. Abbott was the most interesting example of this. Not only did he not know how to govern, when he got into government, he knew that there was an expectation he should fix the budget and he thought, well, all right, okay, I'm going to do the switch now. I'm going to go really crazy with this budget. Yes, and include the BCA in that. Yeah, but I didn't, I didn't haven't broken any promises. Mate, seriously. The, look, obviously, the, and always try to leave this guy out of the conversation until the very end. Mm-hmm. Trump is the worst example of this. Like, this is now writ large in the US system because Republicans control the Congress and they've got the White House and they're still thinking like the opposition party. His rhetoric is all, is all campaign rhetoric. It's yeah. all sort of world championship wrestling rhetoric. But the but the Republicans between them can't between the Senate and the and the House of Reps can't 
can't get their head around how to enact legislation to fulfil the, you know, in, in the case of um, repealing Obamacare, mm-hmm. to fulfil what you think was the reason you got into politics in the first place. So what is that? It's um, part of it's the media age we're in. Part of it's the skill set of the polis. You have to accept that they aren't uh, as good as they think they are. But the operating environment is obviously very different to what it might have been in the 80s or the 90s. It's a lot harder, especially, and go back to media, it's a lot harder to sustain an argument. It's a lot harder, it's, it's easy to recognise what the problem is, but it's a lot harder than patiently walk and lecture it through the, all the options until you landed a solution. I think that's the um, thing a lot of people are trying to get their heads around. Mm. But I would argue, and I'm probably a bit old school about this, I would argue if, you, if your policy is good enough, it doesn't matter what media disruptions going on out there, you should still be able to explain it. You'll get people's attention. Yes. And the other issue which you've uh, referenced here is that the facts are often contested. The facts of the situation, even the assessment of the problem is highly contested. So there's such a huge lack of consensus at all that you find it almost impossible to get to a point of even developing a policy. And and, uh, this is the crucial point. So uh, I just did an event with Gareth Evans last night at uh, the readings in Hawthorne and he wants more consensus. But as as we're having the he says, you know, need to restore some idea of grand bargains between both sides of politics. And as we were sort of tossing that idea around in the question and his response, I made the point, and I make it here now, I repeat it here now, it's less about them agreeing on what the solution is but actually identifying the problem. Mm, absolutely. And I think when you're looking for bipartisanship, you're actually looking for them at least to behave sensibly enough as adults to be able to agree in the national interest, we have to do something about climate change. In the national interest, you can't have a situation where uh, people can't get on a train to get to work on time because the stopping all is going mi- to skip your platform because it's over full. Look, you can't have a situation like that. You can't have a situation where the next drought comes, you're not sure that the water supply is secure. You can't have a situation where you're going to get brownouts and possibly blackouts coming this summer because your energy market, for whatever reason, is not functioning. You can't have these things um, happening. You can argue about how to fix them, but you just can't have these things a- accepted. And, but unfortunately, what we were alluding to earlier, what happens is if one side says this is the problem, the other side feels compelled to pretend it isn't because they don't want to give them, they don't want to give them the credit of having called it out first. Now, it's actually, if you could unpick it, you can pick any you can actually take any issue and i'll go back to abbott because abbott in a funny way not that he starts it but he he's emblematic of it he didn't start it he's not that great a polemicist that he made everybody else go crazy around him i think people have mm-hmm. all been drinking the same water so in the middle of 2009 as turnbull and and rather beginning the dance on on emissions trading I don't know, do you remember this? So you know oh, he yes. He was talking about <laughs> a carbon tax. Yeah. And his front page story on The Australian, uh, I, I talked to him at the time as well because I was still on The Australian then. And, and why did he mention carbon tax? Looking back, I know why he mentioned carbon tax because the other two weren't talking about it. So he thinking, oh, I'll pluck this idea that the other two aren't talking about and it seems simpler, you know, we'd sort of cut to the quick and we'll get there. Carbon tax, right? Mm. Carbon tax. A couple of months and he was advising... As the, as the Liberal Party was advising Turnbull, get this thing off the table. Kevin Rudd is too popular. This issue is too popular. You know, public want action. It cost, it was one of the reasons why Howard lost the 2007 election. Let's 
let's just move on. A couple of months later, Rudd and Turnbull, for whatever reason, even though they, know, they need to cut a deal, they fall out. Uh, and Rudd, Rudd is trying to negotiate and also kill Turnbull at the same time, which you can't do. Not in politics anyway. Not, not, when you, not when you're trying to do the grand bargain. And it's a sort of policy that needs to survive a change of government to, mm. to be called a, a real reform. So late that year, Abbott finally Abbott wakes up one morning and decides he's a climate change sceptic. He wasn't when he was talking about carbon tax. And then turns up the following year, Rudd blows his brains out, uh, metaphorically, and suddenly he's gone from thinking this thing that I talked about nine months ago, oh, everyone's forgotten about that, I am so anti-carbon tax now, I'm going to call it a carbon tax, <laughs> <laughs> even though that's not what it was. Yeah. It's, so that – and he got away with it. And I think that's probably – that tells you that it's not about him so much as that the operating environment is so disrupted – that you can that you could spin arguments like that. You could have one position one week, another the other week, and all all really uh, sort of the media attention on you is who's going to win the next fight. Mm. And I think that's that's when you're trying to unpack again what it is that's gone wrong in the last ten or fifteen years. And unfortunately, it's still going wrong. You only need to look out the window, and we we'll talk we we'll talk about the energy debate. It's still going wrong because I think the incentives in the system at the moment are so are so stacked in favour of opposition, and I don't mean the opposition leader, but just the idea of no is, uh, is still the strongest word in public debate today. It's going to be very difficult to break this impasse. And how do we change that? Because clearly consensus did once exist. Obviously the context has changed. A lot of things have changed. But how can we possibly get back to a point of consensus? What are the key ingredients that make it up? And does media have a role to play in facilitating it? Yeah, it was media. I mean, if if the media was where it was even 10 years ago, you could probably argue the media's role is to continue to cover policy and forget about the trivia. The media's not going to... You can't tell the media to do that. Uh, Annabelle Crabbe and I, and we did this about the same week, but we hadn't swapped notes, but we both declared after the 2010 election we'd never mention an opinion poll again because <laughs> that was one of the reasons. <laughs> I thought that was one of the things disrupting. Yeah. And in fact, but we're getting more of them and they're less reliable. So media's role, we could criticise the media to an extent. I think the bigger issue is, and it's, and it's on the system, it's on the political parties... And I don't just mean the main parties. I also mean the Greens, and I also mean the other minor parties. Uh, you have to you have to understand that when the public service gives advice, you have to respect that advice. And I don't think we've been in that position for a long, long time. Now Turnbull is trying, in a way. Remember when he took the job off Abbott? He said, "I'm going to restore good cabinet government." Yes. Now what that meant was, and every every prime minister's office until the latter period of the Howard era had at the, at the apex of that office, the chief of staff, somebody with a public service background, not a political background, a public service background. And the advice, and Hawke is really the best of these, the advice from the chief of staff to the policy advisors and to the bureaucracy is give us the best advice. Don't second guess the politics. We can figure the politics out. That's what we're paid to do. Just give us the best advice. And the political advisors in the, uh, in, in the hierarchy, they're important... But the policy came before the politics. Hawke and his ministers, Keating and his ministers, Howard in the first couple of terms wanted to know what the advice was and then they would figure out the politics. Now, Rod Cameron used to be Labor pollster uh, for four elections 
for four successful elections from 83 through to 90, but he'd been Labor pollster since the 70s. He, um, he once suggested after an election the, you know, the voters are not too happy with deregulation. They kicked him out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> they said, it. thanks for your numbers, mate, yeah. but don't tell us, don't tell us policy. Mm. Now, Turnbull has been trying to fix that. But I think that that is fundamentally the biggest issue today. If you were, if you were to grab them by the scruff of the neck and say, listen, you're freelancing on too many ideas. Uh, you know, I know you're an important person. I know you're on this power trip at the moment. But if a public service sat you down and said, you really do have to think about this and this is, these are the options, you know, park your ego at least for a second listen to them and I think that's the that's the thing that's been missing for the last few years it's a right. respect it's respect for independent advice and perhaps uh, the intervention sometimes of advisors in that process yes but but I mean take take, take it to where we were and 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 Abbott is sort of the anti-hawk you know he's got as his chief of staff a political operative and buzzing around him a whole lot of partisan political advisors and you know, the first thing they did when they when they got into office was told the Secretary of the Treasury he was out. And no one had ever sacked a, a Treasury Secretary before in the Australian system. No, it never happened before. Not even Keating. They didn't sack John Stone. And John Stone, you know, was a partisan. He turned out to be a National Party candidate. He was on the Joe for Canberra ticket. So he was a partisan public servant. But it never occurred to Labor to sack the head of the Treasury. And... Once you break that seal, once it's all total politics and everybody around you has to choose a side, and it's the same with journos. A lot more journos have been forced to choose now than they did when I started out in the 80s. In fact, you have a young journo today and partly your social media presence will sort of filter, you know, sort of sieve this out. Um, people will decide whether you are left or right, and that's a bad place for a journo to be. Very. Yeah, and there are very few, but I mean, I believe that uh, some people well, were impartial. I still thought Kerry O'Brien was impartial. I didn't know what side he fell on when he was uh, anchoring 7.30. I know he was also on late line, but you know, there was all this debate about is he read Kerry, you know, yeah. socialist Kerry O'Brien, because he grilled Tony Abbott about, um, you know, the NBN. But, but, and Kerry's actually a good example. So uh, there was always that static around journos, but in, in a way one side or another are just basically trying to intimidate him. And, but he wouldn't cop it. But now it's sort of now so normalised. And unfortunately, I don't want to... I certainly don't want to get into the ABC. I love the ABC. But you can see it in the ABC's... Some of its behaviour because they know charter obligation, but they also know that morally they need to be in the centre. They are second-guessing sometimes what a partisan attack will be on some of the things they do. And that, again... In a funny way, that's worse than being forced to choose, mm. um, trying to overemphasise neutrality when what you should be doing, you know, true neutrality is basically running with a story, isn't it? Yes. Going you, don't have to bring down, you don't have to bring down a government with every article or every broadcast, but you just have to consistently, you know, have your, have your listener, your reader, your viewer's mm. interests. You know, you know you're, basically, you're basically conducting your public affairs on their behalf, not on behalf of... Um, the government or the opposition. Mm. I know this, these things seem obvious, but this is the thing we, we're trying to get to the bottom of what's broken down in the last few years, and it is respect for the independence of all public service, for media. Politics, when it did respect the independence of uh, public service and were prepared to be grilled by media, those politicians were actually better communicators than the ones you've got today because the ones you've got today mm. spend a lot of time talking within their own digital bubble.
Yes, and using um, a lot of well, lacking in plain language. Yes. I think they could do that a lot more and certainly um, Dennis Glover makes that point many, many times. Uh, one of the uh, final things I want to touch on, George, is just the uh, inequality argument that Labor has latched onto here because it's really part of their platform now and it fits in a, an amazing suite of policies really with negative gearing. Mm. Um, so in your view, I mean, you wrote a piece in the New York Times recently about Australia's leftward turn I want to understand your view at the moment on, you know, are the conditions just more ripe at the moment for an interventionist approach and um, the Liberals and the coalition government are not equipped to do that? Is it, t- t- a la- sorry, is Labor um, in a position of luck or good fortune in terms of the context that we're operating in? Yeah, I, I, suspect, I suspect Labor in a not dissimilar position today to what John Howard found himself in the mid-90s. So the things that Howard was talking about a lot in the 80s, which was more the conservative social agenda, there was going to be a time in the cycle where it seemed logical. And, I mean, he had difficulty governing, especially in that first two terms, until he sort of saw Hanson off. Now, Labor, Labor know that the... Look, all around the world, economists, most economists now are talking about some sort of some sort of intervention because they know that the market left to its own devices is going to accentuate inequality. And inequality is now a really big issue, not just as a as a, 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 a as you know my wage versus your wage or my wealth versus your wealth. It's actually a much bigger issue as societies age, as rich societies age. The tricky thing that they've got is the younger generation are not going to be able to can't look forward to the next 20 or 30 or 40 years of earning and wealth accumulation to put themselves in the same position that boomers are already when they retire. And as boomers, uh, more of them are retired, uh, the political system, partly because the populations are ageing, is tripwired towards the retention of their windfall gains at the expense of younger people. And you're also running, you know, in Australia's case, a mass migration program where the migrant lands on top, not at the bottom not where my parents started at yes. the bottom because skilled migrants filling gaps in the in the labour market that can't be filled locally because literally for every new entrant Australian born into the labour market there's one one Australian born person retiring mm. so the extra jobs are coming uh, to skilled migrants so that inequality issue not just has a uh, an income and wealth dimension and an ageing dimension it also has a uh, ethnic Dimension. This is these are really, really tricky things to manage, and you can't manage them by just thinking that the market is going to get you a rational answer, because the market, in a sense, is going to continue to accentuate the differences because it's going to reward the winner in a globalised world, and that winner is going to be scooping up huge windfalls. Now, you can't tax them, but you can redistribute opportunity in other ways, and I think this is where Labor might come into their own, but uh, now this is quite a strange way to end this, but my thinking is that it will be more credible coming from a coalition government. The intervention will be more credible coming from a coalition government because they need to bring their people back to the idea of, you know, we sort of let it go too long and the government needs to come back in, you know, where it was... In a way, we did it the right way around in the 80s and 90s. We didn't do the Rager thatch and sort of deregulation without social safety net. Mm. Labor did it. 
and Labor convinced working class people that you needed to open the economy. So I think you need a conservative government to convince the top end of town, small businesses, retirees, their constituency that we need the government back in. So I think, and this is these are long cycles we're talking about, and I think the cycle, whilst it politically might favour Labor, the idea doesn't necessarily have to freeze out the coalition. It's just a question of whether they can come to terms with what's changed. Yes, and I guess bring on board the conservative elements of their party that are very vocally disunified. Yes, yes. Yeah, I love that way that you finish the discussion, George, because I think that's an excellent <laughs> aspiration and I hope any coalition voters and members are listening, not that they would. Well, you never know. We are a diverse community here, we but I do hope and they I'm get the message. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. It's good. We're, we're Switzerland today. Uh, thank you so much George no, You're welcome. Thanks for the chat. It's wonderful to have you. Uh, that was George Megalogenis who is a author and a former journalist for The Australian. He's uh, written a couple of quarterly essays and many books which you can find uh, at any good bookstore and he's going to be speaking this Sunday at a couple of events at the Festival of Questions which is being run by the Wheeler Centre for the Melbourne Festival. One of those is What is Right, What is Left? And there's another one which uh, has sparked my interest is also Philosophical Fight Club. So if you're interested, do check out the Wheeler Centre's website, wheelercentre.com, and you can book all your tickets there. Yes, you are listening to 3RRRFM. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. Uh, I have with me in the studio Naomi Cass, who uh, is Director of the Centre for Contemporary Photography, and Pippa Milne, who is Curator at the Centre for Contemporary Photography. They are both co-curators of this fantastic exhibition, which opened on the weekend, and uh, it's at the centre itself over in Fitzroy, and it's called An Unorthodox Flow of Images. Hi, Pippa and Naomi. Hello. It's so great to have you in here. I feel pretty lucky, actually, to get the duo. Oh, we feel lucky to be here. (laughs) Well, thank you for coming in. And, I mean, congratulations, first of all, because um, this exhibition is so detailed and thought through and comprehensive and thought-provoking and quirky. It's um, It really does capture a lot of history of photography and contemporary photography. So, uh, yeah, it's just quite amazing. It's a very unusual project for a contemporary art space, I must say. Yeah, highly unusual. And so how did you come to this point where you thought that's something that you wanted to undertake? We've been looking at how people wander through exhibitions for many years. Um, All of the staff at CCP have time in the gallery and also being audiences ourselves. And we also were interested in how people walk through the CCP salon exhibition. And we think that people gather their own journey through a cluster of works, making their own meaning through things. And we were hoping to really foreground that kind of behaviour. And Pippa can talk mm. about other influences. Well, we were also quite fascinated by the the way that we view images in a screen-based world these days as well. It's not just in an art gallery that you encounter images. It's also as you walk down the street and you're bombarded with billboards and shop fronts and uh, you go to a movie theatre and you see them again and on our screens and our phones we're constantly scrolling and and 
um, passing images through through our brains, and and it's making us more and more visually uh, intelligent that we are able to filter and place images within different contexts without even potentially knowing what that art history or what that image history might be. We sort of we have an intuition towards putting certain things together, and and in that way we. I sort of think of the exhibition as um, the way that images speak to each other across centuries and across mediums and um, high art and commercial art can sit together and both have commonalities. Yes, and well, one of those um, screen references is uh, Louis Bunuel's uh, extract mm-hmm. of, from his film Un Chien Andalou, which is quite disturbing <laughs> to, to watch. <laughs> when I saw it, I was like, oh, why did I look? I knew that I was going <laughs> to see it, but I still looked anyway. Um, you know, it, it is great and it's placed up a bit higher, that video screen at least, and then you've got a still from it um, below it, so does that interplay as well? We have nearly 160 images in the gallery and that is a really unusual thing for uh, an organisation such as ours without a collection. We've borrowed images from all over the country and in order that people could read these images because it is about being open to and reading images we've i don't know if you noticed there was a dado or a beautiful pale gray panel right through the gallery so the images are placed whether they're still moving high art low art are placed in a long line um, making reference, as Pip says, to to the way people view digital images, but also making a reference to how we read, and we are inviting people to read links and relationships. And the Bunuel you mentioned is part of a, a, a suite of works which is looking at um, orbs, circles, both. It, Um, commencing perhaps with the NASA photograph of the Earth, going right through and perhaps concluding, almost concluding with a beautiful um, video of the dancer William William Forsyth doing a performance talking about the circle or the orb in in three-dimensional space. Mm. Well, that is a really interesting series and... Some of it uh, you don't realise is part of that orb theme until you look at it and you see, um, you know, the the rabbit and its eye is glistening and that's orb-like, um, you know. And that one that you mentioned, is it 34? Steve Carr's Smoke Bubble I mm. found really beautiful, just stunning. There's a little series where uh, Steve Carr's Smoke Bubble moves from... Marty Friedlander, which is another New Zealand artist, with a child blowing a bubble, and that bubble sort of turns into the smoke bubble, which looks like a planet. And then above that, we've got a NASA photograph of um, of uh, a lunar orb. And so it's starting you off on a, a whimsical idea of orbs that then move on to bodily orbs, mouths, and voids, and eyes. And as you say, the Louis Bunuel, mm. um, that famous scene of the eye being slightly or the cow's eye being sliced, which is... Yes. And it, it also <laughs> moves past a, a quite marvellous um, National Geographic from the 1980s, mm. I think, which is a yep. hologram of the Earth. 
Yeah, I was surprised that they did that on their cover. It's very cool. And it's and McDonald's on the back. Yes. We, <laughs> yeah. It's strange. Mm. We couldn't show back in front. So the whole show really grows out of a magnificent and very important work by W.D. Lint. Um, sorry, J.W. Lint. J.W. Lint. And that is a photograph of poor old Joe Burns' body strung up for the photographer and the painter some days. We think one day, but in some accounts it's three days after his death. And what we're looking at is a complex and beautiful image, reputedly the first uh, press image in Australia. and But we see this as the, a seminal moment between what is the medium of record, photography or drawing. And uh, you do see the artist oh, um, Julian, Julian, Ash- Ash- Julian Ashton standing there with his drawing block. And in a way that feeds the entire exhibition. There's a um, beautiful profile of, an in- we think, an Indigenous tracker. And the Indigenous work also is very important um, in this exhibition and we've worked with great interest to, rather than have one section called contemporary Indigenous art, we've um, Mm. wound some really miraculous Indigenous contemporary and um, older work throughout the exhibition. Yeah, that was very noticeable, the the presence of Indigenous art and that it wasn't cordoned off or segregated as its own special theme and I think that's fantastic because it does it shouldn't be separated um it really is just as important and a part of these fantastic themes that you do have going on what what about that uh area where you have the original photo um I'm thinking of Charles Kerry's photo of Aboriginal chief and then Brooke Andrews Mm -hmm. sexy and dangerous could you talk about that so one of the things that we've done with this exhibition is that we haven't always sourced the original image Um, at times we haven't wanted to include the original, we've wanted to um, draw attention to the fact that photography is all about copies. The idea of a copy in photography is a slippery sort of term and uh, photographs circulate in a lot of different ways, whether it's through the internet or in postcard form or as carte de visites in people's pockets and wallets or um, photo albums. And so this image that you're talking about is one is an original uh, carte de visite from the 1800s of an Aboriginal chief and it's the original source material for Brooke Andrews now very famous Sexy and Dangerous which is in a lot of collections um, throughout Australia and this is um, an example of an Aboriginal artist working uh, now to return or rethink and resettle, reset the colonial gaze. So the images that were made in studios by colonial photographers with the intention of perhaps documenting the last of um, these people is now being completely turned on its head by an Aboriginal artist who's working uh, with those same ideas but from their own point of view. Yeah, 
That's amazing. And one of the other reproductions that you have in there is a little postcard, which uh, when I chatted to you on Saturday, I think I mentioned it because I I noticed it and thought, oh, that's really famous. Why is it so small? Because um, it was by Jeff Wall, A Sudden Gust of Wind. And it's meant to be behind uh, above a light box. Um, but this is just a little postcard around the corner. And I loved that too. Mm, the lovely thing about that one is it sits within a series of works that, that are reenactments. So there are instances, a lot of instances in the show um, where artists are remaking, recreating, reenacting um, other works of art or other situations. And there we've got a copy of another copy of an image. So Jeff Wall is actually recreating a woodcut by Hoxai. And like, let's take a step uh, back in terms of in the room, because <laughs> I'm sure you're very well aware of the room by now. Um, and there's this great series, a range of modernist uh, ph- photographs and, and also ones that reference modernist photography. Um, and I'm thinking about, uh, in particular, uh, Olive Cotton, but also Burned and Hiller Becker, uh, who obviously were created the the Dusseldorf school um I was so impressed when I stood in front of that particular one because it's so famous and I had no idea anyone in Australia owned a Burden Hillebecker print um how did you stumble across that one well I have to say we as a contemporary art space we don't have a collection and um uh, to be really honest as a contemporary art collection most major state galleries or libraries are not able to lend to us. So we have been the very grateful recipients of some really generous and gutsy um, private collectors, some of whom wish to remain private, who invited us in to have a look and explore both what was on their walls and, to be truthful, what was under their bed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Collectors are an unusual breed of people. Um, So... Uh, and this work, the Becker was on a staircase and Pip and I nearly fell down the staircase <laughs> um, with excitement. And to be truthful, when we came across that, we just thought we have to have that because we want to celebrate. I mean, we could have put this whole show up on the internet, but no, we want to champion the shared democratic space of the art gallery and the strange experience of standing next to someone you don't know and chatting to them about, oh, my golly gosh, there's a... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so <laughs> Double-check the program to make sure I'm looking correctly. Yes. Um, <laughs> and also, being in Australia, you know, we often encounter, as Pippa says, the, the reproduction of the reproduction. And, you know, when we come across the original, and there are some astonishing originals there, are many of the contemporary artists who are in the show are so excited just to be um, exhibiting with in the same space as Max Dupain or mm. Olive Cotton or Christian Boltanski. So this is a sort of added benefit. But I should um, let Pip talk about that flow, which we have um, and a very exciting flow of works looking at um, a, a, mo- a modernist approach to photography and then how that is twisted and turned by the feminist. Yes, it was. Um, it was quite... An interesting flow to put together because it starts with the very formal grid of the Beckers um, who are taxonomically 
documenting the the types of farm architecture in their region in Germany. And so we've taken that and then moved to a very Australian artist, Robert Rooney, uh, who is similarly investigating in a very formal sense something that is much, much more personal. So he has um, show, he shows us in one frame 109 Polaroids of every item of clothing that he wears for each of those 109 days. So it's indexical and it's also um, looking at exactly what is close to the skin rather than what is out yeah. in the it's world. It's also quite funny. It's I mean, much more funny, funny than, <laughs> than, than the backers. Yes, um, the backers are quite austere and objective and seeking to de-emphasise themselves from the photographs. Yes. Well, Robert is right in there and it's a sort of quasi-scientific um, mm. and also... Um, Humorful. Um, prior to the Becker, we have also we move gradually into this um, grid uh, with a beautiful little series where we start with Olive Cotton's um, teacup ballet, mm. um, moving into uh, David Moore's Sisters of Charity. So you get a sense of um, things often remind us of other things. And when they're in multiples, it reiterates this. And that leads beautifully into the Becker, the Robert Rooney. And we're very grateful to have that Robert Rooney. He's a really stellar Australian artist who passed away this year. This year. Yeah. Um, then we come to Helen Grace, and I'll pass over to Pippa because that's also very funny. <laughs> it is funny, actually. This one is um, another grid, so another formal kind of exploration of um, of an image, and it's a repeated image, seven of the same image of a washing line, a beautiful silver gelatin print of a wash of white washing on a line, and under each image uh, is the name of the days of the week, and the title is time. And and motion study number one, women seem to adapt to repetitive type tasks. <laughs> and it doesn't really look like the washing line changes all that much, does it? It's the same photograph. Yeah. And that's very funny. I was She's trying really to find any pits. difference. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> of a, a very male. The mm. monotony. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So it was a real pleasure to move from those formal connections into, well, next we've got Max Payne, which mm. actually also has a washing line in it. But then taking some liberties and some conceptual and ideational leaps into how we would next. Uh, put a work on the wall that relates and we've decided to move from there into the traces of things so um, we've got works by Marie Shannon and um, Olive Cotton again and Christopher Day and Mac Lawrence which are much more um, there are digital traces or visual traces of water on skin and it's uh, a whim- Much more ephemeral, ephemeral and, and whimsical, yes. Yeah. I have to say, this has been one of the most exciting shows I've ever worked on. It was an absolute <laughs> pleasure. And CCP doesn't have a registration department or a research department or a finance department, so it's it's quite a, a marvellous thing. And with it was also a big ask for the artists and we did engage with each artist and discuss with them so we have their permission, particularly the Indigenous artists, to include their work in this way. And that's the really exciting thing about... This show is really about photography and mm-hmm. contemporary photography. However, its place 
no photography lives in a vacuum, no image is in a vacuum. So it's placing work in, into productive, sometimes challenging and sometimes beautiful context. Yes, and it, I mean, you can see it initially and do a bit of a, a quick runaround because I just wanted to see everything that was there really quickly because it was very exciting to see the whole range. But then I had to go back and slow it down and understand it more because it was so, it was kind of like a puzzle that I wanted to understand. And you don't have to get it right because everyone will have a different view. But it was really intriguing and mentally engaging and also just visually beautiful to look at as well. So I think that's such a unique part of this exhibition is how important the curation is. It's central to the, how you experience exhibition and then just the range of photographs that you include well a couple of things about that there are no labels on the wall so it's pretty naughty or um, challenging in that respect because we're really inviting you to think and feel so we've made a beautiful field guide which you can um, take for free and we're also inviting people to disagree with us or challenge us and there's a hashtag um, where people can upload their own images or or take us to task. Mm. So that's one of the nicest things I think about the show is that there are going to be so many different readings of how different things might connect or might not connect. Mm. And so, as Naomi says, one of the things that we are really keen for is um, for people to either write down their alternative flows, what they would add in, or to post them to somewhere like Instagram where they can include a stack of images that show that flow to us. That's awesome. And also perhaps how they might flow across the room, not necessarily in chronology. Certainly. As you mentioned with the fact that a lot of Aboriginal artists are woven throughout the show, a lot of works could actually be placed in different portions of the the exhibition. Um, And so that does, it gives a real second and third life to the way that they could sit within a flow. There's always Mm. multiple entries to the work and Mm. we hope that people see different genres of entries which might be the meaning of the work or its formal qualities or even uh, similar objects within. Indeed. Sorry, go ahead, Pippa. I was just going to say that that one of the things that we've done with the field guide is we've tried to give one entry point for some of the works. So there are small notes, which are either bits of information about uh, a specific work or an indication of the way that you might think about it flowing on to the next thing. Mm, See, a great booklet. 140, there's just text on the wall because the first photograph taken in Australia is now lost. So on the wall we have a description. (laughs) (laughs) from a newspaper yes yeah yeah no that was great uh really fascinating um i just want to check now is there some public events or programs that people could engage with i know it'll be on the website um if there is yes we've got several public programs coming up um uh this friday night this friday night we're open late so that anyone who's Excellent. not able to Come get during gallery it's just hours. off brunswick street too you Come can and easily have an walk. argument yeah, with us. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've also got a symposium being run in concert with deakin university uh called the transit lounge of photography and that's on saturday the 21st of of October and then we're running two other public programs one is with Stephen Gilchrist from from uh, Sydney who's coming down to discuss um, the roles and obligations and codes of practice for photographing Indigenous subjects um, and then a third public program called A Picture Tells a Thousand Words But Whose and that I will be interviewing uh, 
Claire Wright um, from who runs a, a uh, podcast for the ABC. Exactly. On interpreting images. Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. She's a historian, I believe, from yes. Latrobe, who won mm. the Stella Prize. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's so exciting uh, that people can get along and really interact with you guys as well as the artwork. So that's excellent. Um, and there's also a bit of a salon which people can um, contribute to or put a submission in for. There is. And this is your opportunity. And this is if we're really honest, this is the origin of this exhibition is CCP Salon. Please send us your work and all work is installed. There are no hurdles. It's open entry. That's so exciting. I love it. Very democratic. You are so democratic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so thank you so much, Naomi Cass and Pippa Milne, for joining me today, talking about your exhibition, An Unorthodox Flow of Images. Thank you. Thanks. And you can check that out. It's at the Centre for Contemporary Photography. And I said it's, it is in Brunswick and uh, you can, sorry, Brun- Brunswick off Brunswick Street in Fitzroy because I walk that way um, to get there because I walk. You can catch a tram. You can do a whole range of things to get there. Um, and uh, you can check out everything uh, on their social media or on their website as well. And it is through the Melbourne Festival. So it's also on the Melbourne Festival's website and in that program. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.